addiction, it gets thrown around so easily nowadays. So I have to, again, going back to what I do, language is the number one. I break addiction down into three principles. You address these three things, the addiction falls apart. You break the cycle of addiction. The person will have enough awareness. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Life will break your heart. It will break your heart because your heart's not big enough. It's too small to extend the benefit of the doubt to those that you enjoy hating. It's too small because you've argued for your limits and won. Your heart is not big enough to forgive your family for being human. It has not grown wide enough yet to realize the system you despise has also given you the opportunities you have, but blindly fail to notice. Life will break your heart because it's how you develop courage. And if you look closely, you'll see that you're likely in short supply. Are you willing to stand up and tell people what you really think? Have you digested the opinions you have or swallowed whole ideas that make you feel good? None of us are willing to tear our lives down and rebuild the foundation. And so life shows up and breaks our heart so we can find out just what we're made of. Life breaks your heart because your heart is too small. Your anger and rage is an indulgence that makes you weak. Your heart breaks because it's one of the surest, quickest ways to show the ego its limits and brittle confusion. Hearts don't easily open. Courage is never an inborn trait. It's chiseled from the fire of conflict and fear. It comes from facing the inner and the outer demons. It's the opposite of a safe space, and it demands a deep respect for your adversary because annihilation is an option. You need ferociousness, and that too, like courage. It's an alchemical change that comes from the forging fire of trouble. Life breaks your heart because you don't know your measure, and how could you if you've not been tested and tempered? If you're more concerned with how people see you than respect you, if you're looking outside yourself for validation, then yes, you're asking for heartbreak because being a slave to the opinions of others is not freedom, it's bondage. The heart is not a tender organ. It contains the untamable fire of creation. It's a compass that will lead you toward the destiny that you might want to avoid. It knows your measure, especially when you hide it from yourself. The heart does not mess around. It will unerringly remind you of your weaknesses, and it will forever hold you accountable to that which you'd like to avoid. Hearts, they break open. And while we say that courage comes from the gallbladder, that organ, it's taking its cue from the heart. Heartbreak is a kind of redemption. It's another chance with vaster resources. It makes you wildly attractive and might make you a little more dangerous as well. Heartbreak, it'll make you kinder and more patient. Your capacity for empathy naturally expands. It puts a glint in your eye that lets people know that you mean business. Heartbreak will undomesticate you. It will rewild your spirit. You'll find yourself complaining less and your judgment and discernment will quicken like that of a wild animal. These experiences of falling apart is what separates a doctor 
from a healer. You'll no longer stand up for your weaknesses. And because of the natural fierceness that goes with fire in the blood, you'll also have the capacity for compassion that has nothing to do with being nice or soft. Heartbreak? It will make you more reliable to yourself and those who matter most in your life. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. 
You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Life rarely works out the way we expect it will. And there are times when we think we're on to something, we're on an enlivening edge, or it seems we're opening to the glory of the universe. We want more of what takes us to that elusive moment of luminosity, or we look to the ecstatic so as to escape the troubles we'd rather not face, which in turn can take us down the path of pain and addiction. Today's guest has a lot of experience with doing, air quotes here, field research with psychoactive substances, pushing on limits with awareness, and and in the midst of all that was a quiet voice connected to a more potent medicine that also engaged his attention. Randall Lyons works with addiction and has some unique perspectives to share. I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get into it. Randall Lyons, welcome to Geological. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Michael. Well, we'll find out if it's wonderful. You just got here. Let's see what happens. We don't know yet. (laughs) It's wonderful up to this point. (laughs) Gosh, isn't that just like life? It's like, how's life? Well, it's okay, like up till now, or it really sucks, like up till now. (laughs) Something about that present moment, the power of what can happen in any moment in time. Ah, yes. Well, that's part of the practice for me right now is being in the present moment, not turning on the phone, not looking at the news, recent past news, recent future news, just no, right here, right now. It's wonderful to be talking about Chinese medicine. Yeah. That's why I started the podcast. I was lonesome here in the Midwest and I had this idea that someone else put in my head and I thought, let me check this out. How would I do a podcast if I was doing a podcast? Well, I talked to Chinese medicine friends because I don't have any here. Now, here we are. I'm in St. Louis. You're in, uh, not Vancouver, you're in Victoria. Victoria, British Columbia. Gorgeous island. How long have you been there? It'll be uh, two years right now. And my wife is also here. And we were in Nelson, a small town in British Columbia, for a few years before that. So that's my Canadian experience. So I've got about uh, five years total in Canada right now. Uh Uh-huh. So you're not a Canuck by accident of birth? Accident of birth. You have no idea how close to the truth that could be. I'm a native New Yorker. I'm born and raised in New York. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you got all kinds of stories on how you got to Victoria. But where I'd like to begin today is where I often begin with the generous folks like you agreed to hang out for an hour or so. How in the heck a nice boy from New York got involved with something like acupuncture? I mean, most of us didn't exactly grow up with a lot of Chinese medicine all around us. I mean, maybe we watched up watching Kung Fu and that was it. Well, judging by the 
little gray hairs in your beard and the gray hairs in my beard. I guess we're about that same age there. So I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s, uh, an experiment of the 70s, and disappointed, angry person in the 80s. <laughs> so that, that's kind of where it went down. <laughs> oh, man. I have not heard it put that way before, but spot on, brother. <laughs> I just thought of that yesterday. I was just thinking about that. I was like, yeah, that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. 1985, left New York in a car with two other knuckleheads to become rock stars and move into L.A. And it took a few years there. And, well, I guess what happened was my specialty is in addictions. Mm hmm and let's just say at that time, I was still doing diligent field research. How's that? I was doing my personal field research with music and addictions, the 1980s Los Angeles music scene. And Well, what a great place to do your field research. I can't think of anything better, really. Well, except for maybe New York in the early 80s and the late 70s. So that, that was a perfect segue. But I guess what ended up happening was I had a choice to make in 1988 where my dear friends from 85 to 88 who are in a rock band that are still going, I'm, I'm not going to drop names, but they gave me a choice. They said, hey, you can get on the train. Let's go for the ride. And I said, uh, no, I'd rather be the captain of my own dinghy mm -hmm. rather than a cabin boy on the uh, princess cruise so to speak and so i was like nope I, I want my own band and so i joined a local band there and to keep myself alive i filled my time with i just met a man his name was wong yu daniel wong and i started learning about this chinese stuff at that age, wanted to be Bruce Lee, like everybody else. Sure. And not a bad role model. It was the 80s. That's all we really had. Mm -hmm. Because I guess what? Uh, Steven Seagal? That, no. No. We didn't want to be no. Steven. <laughs> and so the jumping around, the wushu, the kung fu was great. And he's like, yeah, but if you really want to do this, you're going to have to learn this other stuff too. So. He started teaching me the Qigong and the Tai Chi Chuan and the theories behind it in the inimitable way that only a Chinese man can do without answering a direct question ever. Sounds Jewish. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's my humble beginnings. Yeah. So looking back on that from where you are now, what would you say was keeping you in that game, so to speak? What was keeping you in that you couldn't see then? That may, I don't know, maybe you have a glimpse now, maybe you don't, I'm, but I'm wondering if you do. A magic, for lack of a better term, which I guess I should say also that in, then in 1989, I had my very first successful shamanic journey using not mind-altering substances, but just a steady, monotonous drumbeat. And that felt very real to me, more real than the ordinary reality in a lot of ways. And it was a wonderful bridge between ordinary reality, non-ordinary reality, and states of 
consciousness and how to view reality, and then bringing that back to Chinese medicine, the experiences that I was getting with the chi, he provided me with ways of knowing that cannot be explained, that cannot be talked about. And to catch a glimpse of that and to know that in my bones that this is the real gig, this is something's going on here. I feel better. It's working. Something's happening. And you can't buy that. So that little glimpses of that every time. And it was consistent and it was dependable. Mm -hmm. How would you say that the non-ordinary reality of that first shamanic journey with the monotonous invitation of the drumbeat was different than the non-ordinary reality of like whatever your favorite psychotropic was? Darn good question. It was controllable. Mm. That was, I guess that is the most important thing about it is it is controllable when you're using the drumbeat and a methodology and to use your term earlier, cultivated Shen, it felt like I was participating as a colleague in the practice as opposed to getting in a rubber dinghy and flying down the rapids. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking back on my own experiences with my own research over the years in non-ordinary states of reality. Fantastic. A colleague in the field. Well, yeah, a colleague in the field. And I like that term, non-ordinary reality. I remember first running across it probably in those Carlos Castaneda books that I read in high school. Bingo, yes. And there was something very inviting about that sense of non-ordinary and reality being together and that it was profoundly different than the life that I was living. Because, you know, as like a teenager and young man in your 20s, life is not exactly easy. It's a mess in your mind. Maybe there's other people that had an easier go of it, but I just think of the chaos that I was living in, most of it generated by myself. And that idea of a, a reality that somehow could incorporate all of that chaos, but somehow still like not come apart, that there was there, there some kind of continuity to it. I, I remember that being a very inviting thing. I really like the way you worded that, where it contained that chaos. Mm. And there is something about a 20-year-old male that loves chaos mm. for many different reasons. And uh, back in those days, <laughs> it was an angry time period. It was a chaotic period. You know, the 80s was, since we're going down the psychedelic thing, to use a, a Terrence McKenna term, right? He had that idea of uh, chaos and novelty and the time wave zero and how times are just sometimes extremely chaotic and then they're flat and Think of the music, that the difference of the music between the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, that explosion of creativity and just culture and everything. And Chinese medicine came over here. Yes, that's about the time 
it was arriving here. It was that, that sort of late 70s, early 80s, it began to get a foothold here, didn't it? Here's a sideways uh, tangent that I didn't even really think about very often, is that my dad, who is now retired but spent his life working for NBC, the television corporation there, as an electrical engineer, he uh, was sent over there for Nixon's visit. So he was one of the first Americans, Westerners, to go into China in 1971, 72, I guess it was. Your dad was on that visit? He was on that visit, yeah, before Nixon got there because they had to set everything up. So that was like a couple of months before. That is an interesting little segue. Our lives are so full of curious little synchronicities, aren't they? The word synchronicity, boy, is it a reality? That's another one of those bridges, right? I would say synchronicity is a reality. In, in fact, for me, in the way that I navigate life, one of those moments of synchronicity arises. I feel like that veil between ordinary and non-ordinary has become thin, and I've gotten a glimmer. And it usually means keep moving forward. I'm glad we're recording this because I'm going to use that. I believe that is exactly what it is. One of my teachers, Michael Harner from the Foundation of Shamanic Studies, his teacher was at one of Young's, Carl Young's last public presentations in New York. I guess it was the 50s. And one of the oral traditions that comes down is that he says, you know what, synchronicity, I had to use the terminology of psychology because if I had said spirits, which I do feel I can say now is more accurate, they would have strung me up. There's no way that it would have been looked at as a science or anything. So I had to say that at the time. But yes, that veil is very thin and something poking through from the other side saying, you're on the right track. Keep going. Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing I found about synchronicity. It always comes from the periphery. It's, it never comes from what's ever directly in front of me. It's always a little something off to the side, like in the peripheral vision. Spirits, huh? You know, the Chinese, Chinese traditionally, big ghost culture. There's the worship of the ancestors, and there's that sense of ancestral influences. Um, there are certain times of the year, especially if you're in a place like Taiwan, where very traditional culture, they've got a ghost month, right? And people like very careful in that ghost month. Get married, you don't make big decisions. You take it kind of easy because that period of time, that veil between worlds is thin. You want to be cautious. All right. Now, I got a question for you, Michael. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. All right, then. I completely agree. The Chinese people that I know and the people that I've known that have gone to China, and there are traditions that are alive and well. Mm. And depending on how rural you go into the mountains, the shamanic practices are still there and exactly the same as they are in cultures from around the world. So same question I ask my teachers 
every teacher practically going through school, how come we don't see it taught in the medicines today? Well. In Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that question because, you know, I'm not a historian or, you know, any kind of sinologist or anything. But I, I usually have an opinion about something, so I can share that with you. And I would say it rhymes a bit with Carl Jung saying, I had to say synchronicity. If I said spirit, that wouldn't work. Nobody listened to me and think I'm crazy. So to some degree, I think, especially with the communist role in China, in the Communist Party, I'm not a political person, but this is going to sound political, but I, I, I'm not a particularly political person. But my suspicion is the Communist Party, you know, the whole idea is that the state gives you whatever you need, not God, not the world, not nature, not the Tao, the government. We have similar ideas here, too, when you really look at it, right? The government's going to fix this for us. Well, maybe. I remember Ronald Reagan saying most terrifying words you can hear are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Anyway, I'm <laughs> sidetracking from what I want to say, which is that they wanted to try to grab what they could out of the traditional medicine and make it kind of usable to everyday people because they had a big damn country that was poor and war-torn. And they did this. You know, like with TCM, they like cherry picked some really great stuff. They had amazing people like Chinbo Wei and all kinds of doctors. Like, how do you treat this? How do you do that? How do we use the medicine? And so, it, like, TCM is like the dummy's guide to Chinese medicine, you know, the idiot's manual. And, and I say idiot with a very kind heart because I used to have uh, How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive, a complete idiot's guide to keeping your Volkswagen alive. And that was one of the greatest books I've ever read, by the way. So I think part of it is they were trying to grab some technology for helping people. And I saw this in Taiwan, where if something has some mojo to it, they'll cozy up to it. So I can tell you other stories. Maybe we'll get to that later. But Western medicine has a lot of damn power to it. And so I think part of it is that they were, you know, they had that materialist point of view. They were trying to squeeze it together with Western medicine. Okay, you can squeeze it to some degree, but not a lot. And they were trying to educate people quickly, like months and years, to learn this stuff in a traditional fashion. You're there for 7 to 10, 12 years. Right. So there's that. And it's idiosyncratic. And they were looking to standardize things. So if you want to standardize things, then the kind of form that's come to us, it's not wrong. It's just incomplete. And then, so the books that get written about Chinese medicine are those books. And then us honky Westerners go over there in the 70s, and we find some of that treasure. And those are the books. Those are the books that are easily available. It's what's being taught in school. So, thank goodness we had some guys that went over, found that material, translated it, brought it to us. So, again, 
I'm very reluctant to say, oh, things were trying to be hidden. We make mistakes along the way. And with the best of intentions, we solve certain problems and then create other ones. That's my long-winded answer. Happy to be on your show. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts about how and why the shamanic stuff didn't come down other than people read the Huang Di Jing and even back then the Yellow Emperor was saying, eh, people are using shamans, they should be using medicine. What do we do to fix this? What are your ideas about that? Isn't that amazing? It's the same off. That's just folk medicine prejudices. It really sounds like it doesn't matter where you go, what culture you're in, if you're banging a drum, shaking a rattle, and you're making yourself obvious, well, then you've subjected yourself to persecution. And this medicine, our medicine goes back thousands of years. I don't know what happened in all of these different regions of China of how strong those prejudices were. Like in Europe, right? You're a witch. You had to go underground. Mm-hmm. So... My thing is that I really feel and I love the fact that, oh, it's not a spirit, it's an energy, it's chi. And to be able to turn that into such non-outward, obvious, somebody's looking in at you, oh, they're just sitting there meditating, they're really not doing anything, or even doing a qigong form. Oh, he's acting like that dragon, that silly guy. But when I speak to people who still have the juice, they are adamant that I am the dragon. No, this is exactly what's going on. And the language of the shamanic is still there. And it's just a shame that it's been hidden. And I guess my optimistic self says the people that I run into, again, I deal with addiction people. So. They're um, often looking for existential answers to the big questions of life and the resolution of trauma. And so this kind of goes right into spiritual help. How do I get help? What does spiritual help look like? And so, uh, yeah, I think people today are hungry for that, for those answers and in practical ways because, as you said, right, is it good? Is it bad? You know, Western medicine is great at what it does, but it is completely like a surgery taking out the soul of things. That was my tangential answers. Yeah. Could have gotten into a whole bunch of questions there. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. 
I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, you bring up the term spiritual health. And growing up as I did, I've got two sides. One part kind of looks at the spiritual and I roll my eyes like a 17-year-old. And another part of me has wide eyes going, oh, tell me more. Both of those energies are quite alive in me. They still are. And so I'm always skeptical. I'm especially skeptical when someone says, hey, I got some spiritual juice. My very first thought is, really, dude? All right. Like, I'm from Missouri. Show me, motherfucker. <laughs> but of course, anyone who's really got spiritual juice, I mean, who actually does, they're not going to show you. And they're not going to show you. And they're definitely not going to tell you. They're not going to announce it. Well, they're not going <laughs> to tell you. That's for sure. Actually, they will show you, but they're not going to show you like a damn stage magician. Exactly. They're going to do things like what happened to you. Doing your psychedelic research at night and doing rock and roll. But during the day, you're going to go see this other person and learning this other stuff. He was not flaunting it. I suspect that this spiritual stuff, it's more like a quiet invitation than a brass band. I suspect. But then again, you got preachers and big tents and people throw away their crutches. So, I mean, you got that too. How do you explain that? Well, there's that the placebo effect thing going on, right? I mean, the power of belief. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I loved doing, you know, I got to got to give my props to Michael Smith and what he developed there in the Bronx, the NADA protocol for the auricular therapy in addiction treatment centers. It's paid my rents and mortgages over the last decades and at the same time has caused me to go, yeah, why, how? I got a lot of one-liners and one of my one-liners is, this is great that you're doing this, acupuncturists, but how can you treat something you don't even have a definition of or a diagnosis for? And you got to use it in Chinese medicine terms, not you know, well, it's an addiction. Well, what does that mean in Chinese medicine? Exactly. This is something I was wanting to ask you. You're asking the question. I usually write down a couple questions before I start to talk to someone, just in case I don't know what to talk about. I can always lean on a question or two. One of the big questions that I've had, and it's not just about addiction, but it's about many things. Like, how do you talk about X in Chinese medicine terms? So I want to ask you this. How does Chinese medicine help with addiction. And really, like you were just saying, not in terms of, oh, I got these groovy five needles and yeah, good because they can do something. But like, what is it about the way that we see like the strengths and the virtues and the vices and the various proclivities of the organs and how they interact with each other and what that means about addiction or health for that matter? Yeah, go ahead. What's your answer? I'm asking you. You're the expert <laughs> oh, you're, here. Oh, you're asking. <laughs> but that's... I was trained by a Chinese person, so I'm going to answer a question with a question, or Jewish, you know, you can do it either way. So, yes, 
I had the amazing blessing of being given an opportunity to transition from just doing the NADA protocol. Everybody sits in the room, you turn on the groovy music, throw in the needles, and everybody cooks. And you pull them out, and everybody leaves. To a startup treatment center, I'll say this one because I loved this one. I've worked at dozens, and there's a lot of machinery going on. All right, we'll stay away from the politics and the, and the business end of it. But this one was called the Orchid Where Women Heal. So she was starting up 2003, 2004, a facility just for women. I was the only man. There was a handful of people on staff, and it was just a handful of people. And sitting in a room with one, two, three other people, and they start asking you questions, mm-hmm. human questions. They have no background in Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I have to start coming up with answers. And, oh, well, there's chi. And no, you can't do that. No, too. no, because it doesn't connect. Exactly. And our job is to connect. That's where I am these days is I'm not completely circumnavigating the question, but I need to explain addiction not only to you, a colleague in my field, but to that 22-year-old heroin addict who doesn't want to be here existentially or literally in my room, mm-hmm. to the 30, 40-year-old spouse who's addicted to pain pills and then or the 60, 70-year-old alcoholic. Well, what do I got to change? I have to be able, what's the definition? To those people as well as you And then now, if I'm integrated, and I use that word with air quotes here on the audio, in a facility where now I'm going to send these people off to their trauma therapist, their mental health counselors, or maybe even a medical doctor, I have to be able to give them something to where they can say, well, I just came out of Randy's group, and he says... How does that land with you? So I love this. And I've been in front of conferences where I've got addicts next to neuroplasticity PhD candidates, next to mental health counselors, next to acupuncturists, next to MDs. And everybody's sitting there with their arms crossed going, go ahead. Like you said, you are the brass band. You're the performing monkey. You're on. Go. Prove it to me. And I love going into those situations because we all think we have the medicine. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gone into that medicine. So we think we've got something special. And my job nowadays, I believe, is to make these bridges through language, through explanation, that we all are on the same team and that we all can, because I believe firmly that Chinese medicine can treat every aspect of an addiction. I may not have the ability to do Mm, it, mm. but I know the medicine has. Mm -hmm. 100% agreed. And I say that not because I understand much about addiction, but because, well, if I didn't believe that, it would be hard to do the work that I do. And also because I see younger practitioners and I've been one, and I'm, even though I'm not a younger practitioner, I still bump up against it. There are things I think the medicine can treat. It's just that I 
don't know how to do it yet. I hear younger people, and it breaks my heart, newer practitioners, well, Chinese medicine doesn't treat that. We're going to use functional medicine instead. It's like, mm, I don't know if I'd write our Chinese medicine off so quick. Go a little deeper before you decide that it doesn't work. And that going deeper part, I think is often, it can be a delight because, ooh, it's fun to learn something. But it also takes us to that edge of, I don't know, and how do I feel when I don't know? And am I capable when I don't know? And how can I be capable in a moment when I'm recognizing that I'm incapable? And it's learning to do with my incapability that will make me more capable. Those are really difficult bridges to cross. I'm going to sit in that. And I want to sit in this moment of, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know what to say. Because that's exactly that feeling, yes. right? It's like, I could come from the, well, I have a canned answer for you, and I know exactly what it is. But when we, I'll use the collective language there, mm -hmm. let go of that, and we let go of the role of, well, I have decades of experience, and let me tell you what the, I don't know. Then I'm left with being a human, sitting here through a screen across from you, how are we going to answer this? And boy, like you said earlier, the periphery, right? Mm -hmm. Now I've opened myself up to those new ways of, I'm going to be the new person again. And to me, that's exciting. That's why these talks are exciting. So, Thank you for leaving a little room for the unknown. I'm going to speak personally. I don't know if I invite it into my clinical practice often enough. It sure shows up often enough. Usually makes me uncomfortable because my patient wants something to be different and they're depending on me to know. But a lot of times it, it's hanging with the unknowing that allows something to arise that is uniquely helpful for that person. And unlike the TCM where they tried to get the answers and teach the answers. I think it's more about being able to sit comfortably with the questions. There's a cultivation for you. Boom. And you just explained to me, we just got to a place that answered for me why those old Chinese masters that I looked up to in that moment of me asking that young youthful, give me, I'm hungry. I'm a little baby bird. Feed me. Give me, I got a, it's a yes or no answer. Give it to me. And they would no, 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 and no, not give it to me and stop. But I never considered that it was this moment that they didn't know. But now it's maybe exactly what we're talking about to where they were, all right, what do I do for this knucklehead to try to get him from point A to point B with grace and ease so that he can understand it? And that's why they just nodded their head and maybe said, good, good. What does that mean? Knucklehead is the right word. But the intentions were there. Yes. The desire to be better. 
mm-hmm. was, was always there too. Yeah. So I want to bring this back to addiction, putting together what's the connection between addiction and desire to be better? So I just want to stick a pin in that question so I don't forget, because I've got a question behind that in terms of, because I don't work in the addiction field. I hear the word a lot, but these days I hear the word addiction, like I hear the word trauma, like I hear the word patriarchy, like I hear the word capitalism, like so many words, and I think I know what they mean. And yet at this stage of my life, I hear it and I go, what are we talking about here? Because addiction, I think, is multifaceted and multivalent. And we talk about capitalism, like, okay, like, which part of capitalism are we talking about? Patriarchy. I don't even know what it means anymore. So I feel like I'm getting dumber, either dumber in my uh, adultage here in my 60s, or, or just waking up to how much I really don't understand what I thought I did. So with that in mind... Tell me about addiction, because I really don't know much about it. Or maybe I do, but I don't know that I know. You bring to mind that Terrence McKenna quote, which he took from somebody else smart before him who says, uh, the larger I build my bonfire of knowledge, the more darkness I see. (laughs) So... Yes. The more I know, I don't know. And a little more directly, there is something about language nowadays that is, it's getting so watered down to speak to your experience of addiction. It gets thrown around so easily nowadays. So I have to, again, going back to what I do, language is the number one. I break addiction down into three principles. Mm. Number one, addiction affects the whole person, mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical. Okay, great. I can live with that, right? Number two, addiction is a cycle. That's where we come in. We love cycles and patterns. Yes, we do. Number three, addiction impacts every close relationship in a person's life. You address these three things, the addiction falls apart you break the cycle of addiction, the person will have enough awareness and depending upon the definition of addiction that the person will accept, you can go as deep down the rabbit hole as you want. And how much better do you want to keep cultivating your Shen, keep getting more awareness in your life? And you know, when you hit a plateau, this is good enough. I want to just live here for a while until life forces me to maybe be better or fall down and get back up to here. But all right, there's a lot there. I also say that addiction is predictable, but you are unique in the sense of there's two things going on at the same time, and it's filled with paradoxes. Most treatment approaches, let me take out the most, okay? Let me just say some treatment approaches today And the ones that I was subjected to when I finally got sober July 17th, 1994, was you got to do it this way. You got to do this. You got to do that. I remember being laughed at and with all love and intentions of good things, I go, wow, hey guys, come on. We got sayings too. It's called, you think you're terminally unique. 
It's like, this is, here's another guy who thinks he's going to do it his way. Yeah, we all know what that's going to look like. And while that is true, it also gave me enough pain to say, well, I'm not using your program because I am unique. And because I couldn't find where the Chinese medicine or the core shamanistic approaches would fit in. It's like, no, I'm going to use those things. Oh, you already had these other resources with you. Exactly. When you arrived at that place on July the 17th, 1994. Exactly. You already had these other resources and you weren't going to let them go. Bingo. Mm -hmm. And I was going to pound that square peg into a round hole until it fit because I knew it worked. Now I just had to explain how. And that's what I've been doing since. Lucky you. Well, <laughs> try, try explaining. No, gee, really, to that 25-year-old Oxycontin. Come on, man. They want to see the brass band. They want to see the monkey perform. Yes. Well, if it takes a brass band and a monkey to get the message across, then by all means, bring the bat, the brass band. Or punk rock. Who the hell cares? Bring Brad Warner in and throw some zen on it, too, you know, for that matter. I mean, a friend of mine I went to Chinese medicine school with was in touch with me recently. He's been, he doesn't read much Chinese. He reads a little because we, we studied it when we were in school and, and he's been practicing a long time now. And he was just curious about some uses of qi. And so we were talking over the past week or two. And qi is, I think, one of the most difficult, slippery concepts to try to bring into English and attempt to nail down. Because if there's any concept, if there's any process that is more unnailable than qi, I don't know what it is. And so we get to use everything in our life in, in service of the work that we do. And when it comes to something like chi, I mean, most people can't even pronounce it correctly, let alone grasp it. If, if you look in a dictionary, a Chinese dictionary, you'll see the character chi, and then you see all the binomes that it's listed with. And it goes on for pages. How do you say weather? Tian chi, sky chi. Complexion, mian chi, face chi. Right? If you're angry, sheng chi, chi goes up. Chi shows up as this slippery force that imbues so much of life. So, yeah, like which chi are you going to explain to that Oxycontin addict? It's like, which one is going to land with him and give you some duh chi? Which one's going to land with him so that the chi actually does something? That is the mark of the doctor, right? You said the word imbue. Mm. And it's like that idea of transference of chi, right? The, the Buddhists call what, what, when they transfer uh, transmission, right? Mm. And there's all different opinions on that. But how do we transmit that knowledge, that experience, so that it lands with them in a way that imbues them, empowers them, and transfers the responsibility too. And it transfers the idea that now they want to participate in the process. And I 
well, you know this, that is one of the reasons why people come to us is because they want to be empowered. Many people, many people are also just looking for another way to not be empowered and to hand over the power to another doctor, fix it for me. I think one of the great promises of conventional medicine and one of the reasons why people often feel so failed by it is its promise is we're going to help you get rid of your problem with no participation on your part. And there's a part of me that really would love to have aspects of my life that are troublesome, just poof, fairy godmother comes along and changes it. The problem is that doesn't change me. That doesn't change the underlying conditions and circumstances that gave rise to that. And you were talking about this as also being kind of a shamanic process in a way, and how shamanic processes have opened you up to different ways of seeing reality and working with it. Um, this thing about being God really resonates with me. It's our job to help people find that capacity in them that maybe they lost or set aside. Often I think they've just lost it. I don't think they'd put it down if they knew what they were putting down. I think, I think we get kind of lost from certain aspects of ourselves. Does that make sense? You're ringing the bell. It's resonating with me, absolutely. I, I love the idea of remembering. Okay, here's a can of worms for you. I have a picture that I've saved. I don't have too many belongings, but I have one picture. I'm four years old, and I distinctly remember the moment of it being taken. And... I got brought to a photographer, you know, it's like, okay, the four year old, the boy's going to have some pictures taken. And I was doing mudras with my fingers. <laughs> and the photographer's like, um, okay, one more, but stop doing that with your hands. And I remember just this flash of being like, all right, we're going to have to pacify this guy. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the big four-year-old smile. Okay, here's the cheese that you've been searching for, but I'm not letting go of the mudras because this is very important. And I remember saying this. I go, now this is a message to my future self. And I remember doing that, and I got this picture, and I look at that picture, and I'm like, what am I trying to tell myself? I don't know. What was, <laughs> what's that moment? But this idea of remembering and whether it's past lives, whether it's, well, is that the hunt or the pole? What, what's going on? And I love the idea of we've already got it inside us. We mm. already innately have the ability. The clear Shen wants to shine through. It does. And how you said it earlier in the podcast of, well, when I was a young man, mostly the problems were me. I self-created these things. So, yeah, that, that was a long-winded tangent, but I think we know that the clear Shen is in there, and it's just a matter of removing the phlegm, or however you want to say it, so that that Shen shines through the seven openings of the heart. 
in recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. For me, I have to root any of the stuff that I talk about on the podcast in my clinical work. I mean, it's easy to talk about hypotheses and ideas, and I love that. For me, it's how does it actually show up in practice, in real life, with another human being in that moment of arising, really. And so hearing you say healing is remembering, you could say it the other way, remembering is also healing. That there's something about healing and remembrance. I think that's something you can take to the bank, so to speak. Or you can take it to your treatment table. Often people, after a particularly helpful acupuncture treatment, they'll say something about something they remembered or something they felt. Maybe something they felt that they haven't felt in a long time. Or maybe they don't even remember feeling like the way that they're feeling at this moment. And they ask me, where did that come from? What did you do? And the answer is always, oh, that's you. All the needles do is call forth what's already there. This thing you're feeling, it's not outside. It doesn't come from the outside. That's you. I think those moments in my practice are probably the most potent ones when people recognize, oh, that's me? Mm. Like you with that four-year-old picture. Yeah, that was you. Mm -hmm. You got the big smile and you got the mudra. You know, our amazing, quirky, wobbly selves. You just did something that reminded me of the connection between what causes the pain, let's say trauma and healing of trauma mm. and using this idea of remembering. And we're on video so I can see you. You held your chest, but you made that sound of, huh? that moment. And I love working with the emotion of fright and I use that emotion, fright, and I, I translate it 
as we've been talking about here, I translate that into trauma. And then I translate it a little further. And in my business, I don't call trauma trauma because some people say, I don't have trauma. It's like, okay, hang on a minute. Trauma, abuse, heartbreak, and loss. I, I have the acronym TALL. Trauma, abuse, heartbreak, and loss. We've all had those things happen where we are one way before and we are another way after. And we're changed forever and that's it. Mm-hmm. And what happens in that moment? The fright hits, boom, and that sound, that sound, <gasps> and Machiocha uses the term suspended chi. I like that idea of fright. It's like, <gasps> the chi gets suspended, and for some trauma, and then this opens up that whole conversation of Western medicine of Limited choices, fight, flight, and freeze. And for good reason, you know, it's survival. But then there's that statement in the Ling Shu that I don't have quite memorized, but that I've lived by, which is the evil chi that comes in to penetrate the heart. If it makes it to the heart, the Shen departs. The Shen departs, the person will die. Therefore, the evil chi that comes in to penetrate the heart will be diverted to reside in the pericardium. And so how long does it stay there? What does that look like? What does it turn into? What happens if it stagnates for decades and turns into what I would term a role? And then I have a whole model based on this. And all of the dysfunction that happens based upon that one, <gasps> that suspension of chi. And then people say to me, it's like, ah, I don't really, like, I think of loss. It's like, think of the time, you know, have you ever gotten that phone call where it's like, Randy, did you hear? I got some bad news. Red Ed had a heart attack. I still remember that moment. Boom, he's gone. And in that moment, I can't breathe. And in that moment, I don't know if I'm ever going to take a breath again. <sighs> and then I do. And then all that comes in is grief. And so again, that gets intertwined in there. And then does that get stagnated? Does, do we process that? Do we express that? And by process, I mean by like spleen chi as well as counseling, because I think those two things are easily equated. So uh, there's a whole bunch of spaghetti I just threw on the wall. I don't know what the question was. <laughs> yeah, man, we're painting a Jackson Pollock picture here today. You know, you talk about that helpful and interesting, you know, because you could see me and you could see my hand go to my chest and I make the sound. And, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of cooking with that at the moment. Talk about the force that strikes at the heart, it gets diverted to the pericardium. So this is something amazing and wonderful and problematic about human beings all at the same time. Yes. That, okay, so the heart's been protected. The pericardium has taken the hit. Humans are marvelously adaptive, marvelously, phenomenally, creatively adaptive. And so now we have this compensation that's come into our system. We're now navigating around this frozen, suspended chi. Sometimes we can do things of incredible brilliance that come from 
that pain and that suffering and that compensation. It's not all, it's not all bad, so to speak. Sometimes it's the fuel that moves us through life. It can get a lot of things done. It's like, okay, so I've got this new solution now. Ooh, and it's actually giving me some rocket fuel for something. Now I'm a really good poet. Now I can write like I couldn't write before. Now I can play guitar with a venom that I didn't have before. Right? Or now maybe I'm just sad like I've never been sad and I, and I can't do anything. I mean, it could go in so many directions. I'm curious in the way that you work with people to heal and transform with, with remembrance and everything else that you do. What do we do when our solutions to a problem are the source of our problem? We've got something that works and it helps us, but we also suffer deeply. Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? And how do I invite the person sitting in front of me to the notion that their wound also contains the magic in their gift that only they can bring to this life in the way that they can do it? And... Uh, Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, right? And I was just thinking of this the other day. And are you familiar with uh, Stephen Pressfield? He wrote a book called The War of Art. I've got several copies here. I sometimes hand them out to patients. Oh, yeah. Stephen Pressfield is a badass. Isn't he? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. When I talk to him, because I am going to, or maybe if you talk to him before me, you have a podcast, ask him why he capitalizes resistance with the R, because doesn't that just fit into that Western idea of what we do to Chinese medicine? We capitalize the liver. We we put a capital L. I want to know his answer to why he capitalizes resistance. That's a great question. I don't know. I actually have invited him to the podcast. I don't usually talk to people that don't do Chinese medicine, but every now and then there's someone it's like, whoa, you have a skill set and you fit with what my audience is doing. But he sadly has been, he was too busy. So somehow Geological didn't make it on. But I'm going to tell you something about the generosity of Stephen Pressfield. His secretary is the one who communicated with me with much thank you. Oh, thank you for being interested they sent me a box of books. It's like, here, you know, here's some of his books and feel free to hand them out to people that you think it would be helpful for. That's awesome. That's the kind of person Stephen Pressfield is. Yeah, War of Art is amazing. And yeah, so capitalizing that R in resistance, we capitalize the L in liver. Well, that opens up the whole question of like what, really is the liver, you know, because we do this really weird mumbo jumbo thing like, well, I'm treating your liver, but your liver is not really your liver. It's like, wait a minute, full stop. What do you mean the liver (laughs) is not the liver? You say you're treating my liver. How can the liver not be the liver? Like, what kind of mumbo fucking jumbo is that? What are your thoughts? I've got 
this one particular slide, I have the great honor I'll be presenting again this year at the Great River Symposium in uh, Minneapolis on video. Third year in a row, I can't get there. I want an excuse to go there. But anyway, uh, one of my slides that I love talking about that I bring into any presentation I can do is I've got three lines. And the bottom line is the word heart spelled with a small h. And it's about the idea of the physical. As a practitioner, this would be doctor as surgeon, doctor as mechanic, doctor as engineer, mm. and listening with lab tests and scientists, doctor as scientists. Sometimes people, when I say mechanic, some people take heart. That's what they see, like you said. Like this, we can talk to our patients. They know exactly what we're talking about. Then the second line is I have the capital H. And it's like now we enter into this conversation that you just brought in. And the third one of the heart is, is I just have the character for the heart mm -hmm. next to our universal symbol for the heart. Mm -hmm. Now... How do we talk that way? How are we a doctor that way? How do we do the things like we've been talking about during this conversation? Doctor as mythologist, poet, shaman, uh, priest. How do we get that conversation happening and them to be able to participate, understand? When I'm sitting in the I don't know if I don't, how am I going to do this? And yeah, that brings, you know what else it brings to mind is. There's a chapter in Ted Kapchuk's book, The Web That Has No Weaver, which is, right, one of those books you got to read every few years. Classic. Like The War of Art. And there's a chapter in there. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. But it's just like he's talking about his relationship with his doctor who he just watched. And he talks about three levels of treatment. And... His thing at the end of the chapter is, boy, this doctor, it doesn't matter what they had going on with them. It doesn't matter how he treated them. If he treated them, when they walked through the door, they left differently. Every single time they left better. It was like, to use a Qigong term, they entered into his chi field mm -hmm. and just through that process and, you know, as a facilitator of ritual, it's you create this space of safety, possibility. I don't know. All I'm, all I'm responsible for is like a pericardium, right? Keeping out the riffraff and letting the clear shen land and let's shine that spotlight, see what happens. I am thinking about how natural systems, and they've even done this with petri dishes and heart cells that are beating. And th beating heart cells in different petri dishes will entrain with each other. And women that live together, their periods will entrain with each other. And in general, I suspect with us living forms in this world. A system that is more chaotic when it comes up against a system that has more coherence 
is what happens? I suspect it has to do with which system is more rooted, so to speak. If a system of chaos comes up against a system of coherence and they're sort of of equal force, I don't know, maybe get thunderstorms. If you have more chaos than coherence, we know what happens to the coherence. But if the coherence is more rooted and stronger and more pervasive, that chaotic system will come into coherence. And I suspect this is what can happen in our clinics if we are able to practice with a sense of cultivation, if we're able to, to be comfortable with the not knowing, if we can somehow keep ourselves coherent and present, I think our patients will lean on that. And it helps them. Working hypothesis. Love that. You uh, just made me come up against a shortcoming of mine and it's like yeah well why don't i do that more and the immediate answer i got was because my my big fat ego loves going damn we just did we nailed that session we just did exactly what michael max just said look at wow like you have a treatment room there's more. It's like, yeah, but hang on a minute. <laughs> Let me get my nurturance from the Tao and the universe. So, boy, there is that cultivation and that recognition of my own shortcomings mm -hmm. and where I get, like the 20-year-old self of mine from 30-something years ago, I still get in my own way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, me too, brother. On a good day, I can sit with equanimity in the moment where the patient says, yeah, I've had headaches ever since I saw you last. Or the patient says, that problem that I had for seven years is now gone. My practice is that regardless of which of those moments I'm sitting in, I can receive it in the same fashion with kind of a, hmm, okay, interesting. I fail at it all the time. I really do. But I still work at it. All right. Now, this is going to be a voice of more of a question for you. Mm. Michael, I need you to give me the answer, okay? Because I hear you. It sounds great. But my 20-something-year-old English guitar player that used to do rock and roll really does not like the term equanimity. It's freaking boring, man. It's just boring. Equanimity? I don't want equanimity. I want skyrockets. I want that. I never played a song the same way twice. Yes. And that would drive the rest of my band bonkers. Yeah. But... All right, now I'm going to make up some numbers here, but the general idea is there. So let's say 95% of the time, it wasn't as good as in their minds if I had just stuck to the script and done it the way we do it. But in 5% of the time, you hit that magic. And call it Shen, call it 
something's going through you. It's like something is playing and I'm just the conduit. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same thing happens in treatment rooms, in groups. Exactly. Yes. So is it better to play the equanimity game and do that or is it okay? I know my personality shoots I'm constantly shooting for the special. Mm -hmm. A baseball analogy, right? I'm swinging for the fences, so I'm going to strike out more. You're going to strike out more, but you're going to try to hit that crazy fucking curveball and hit the fuck out of it, right? That's what you're looking for. So I use the term equanimity. So equanimity is not just like, oh, I'm all calm and chill. Equanimity also means if I was playing guitar with you and there's a weird note Equanimity is like, well, that's a weird curveball note. Here's how we work with that. And you take what's in front of you and you kind of match it, a keto style, and follow it and see where it wants to go. Bringing everything that you have that's in you to do that. And it's like part of what I call me identifies with it. And part of me is just watching it and going, oh, that's sweet and so cool. Look how weird that is. I think it's both and. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both and. Swing for the fences, brother. Get into it in your clinic with patients. Meet them where they are. And if someone's kind of chill and all that, well, you can be kind of chill. That, that's the energy signature that will allow you to connect with your patient. But if someone's a rock and roll player, then speak some damn rock and roll to them. This great story about this fantastic therapist, Milton Erickson. Have you heard of Milton Erickson? Indeed. Okay, so... He has a room up at Esalon, I believe, uh, Milton Erickson. Does he? Yeah. The Milton Erickson room? So, for our listeners who, who may not know Uncle Milton, he was a phenomenal psychotherapist, hypnotherapist. I think he was just really good with words. At one point, he was working in a mental institution, and he was working. There's a patient nobody could work with. The guy just spoke word salad. And so Milton Erickson's whole thing is like you connect with people like wherever they are. So Milton Erickson hung out with this dude and like would speak word salad to him. And at a certain point, the patient begins to like speak regular language and sort of gets his life back, completely gets his life back. But every now and then he'll see Milton and he'll come in and they'll just speak a little word salad just for old times. <laughs> and I think about that a lot because even though I like to think I understand what my patients are saying, what they mean or where it comes from, I think the truth is often with us human beings, we are speaking word salad to each other. We just don't recognize it. And so whenever we can somehow <sighs> drop into that sense of connection, and you know it when you feel it. That's when the chi is a bit more alive. Then something can happen because you're connected. I love that. It reminds me of, again, that first principle. Addiction affects the whole person, mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical. And why I do that is because it's plain English. People understand it. It's also a triage model. Mm. In other words, if... I have four different people sitting in the same group, and one guy's a physical guy saying, look, dude, I got back pain. 
I don't need to be sitting here talking about my childhood or fix the back pain. My problem is 100% physical. And I got another guy going, you know, uh, mental, I really need to get a control and grasp and I need to, do you have any like Buddhist mind things I could use, you know, emotional, spiritual, you know, the routine. So if I have four different people sitting in that same room, they're asking for four different languages and they're asking for four different medicine. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, again, you brought earlier that idea of addiction. What the heck does that mean? So that's where I begin with them is it's like, well, time out. We have to spend some time figuring out what's your language because that'll lead us to what is your medicine. Ooh. And then I, I will be able to deliver that brand a whole lot better. What is your language that lets me know what might be your medicine? That is really helpful. Not just with addiction. I mean, across the board, that makes sense. And I appreciate you couching this in addiction. It's this bigger thing. This is one of the facets. Are we speaking to people in the way that we are connecting with them? You know, I'm a cheater. <laughs> I'm just a damn cheater. People ask me, what do I do for a living? And I say, you know what I do? I point out the obvious. Uh, that's all I've been doing, and I've been getting away with it for quite a while now. So this idea of the language and the medicine, it's so simple. It's so simple because they're telling me. They're telling me what they want, and all I have to do is just, as we've been saying, just listen to them. The word salad example, right? It's like, just give them what they want, and then now we've made the connection, we have trust, we have a foundation upon which we can get into the next steps of addiction is a cycle, and we can start talking about all that stuff then. Easier said than done. Indeed. I know from my own experience of working in clinic, I have my own motivations. I want to make money. I want to be helpful. I want to feel like I'm helpful. I want to feel like I'm useful. I got all my own agendas. To simply listen to what the other person needs and help them get it. I mean, it sounds really easy. But again, I've got my own agendas that you know, over time, on a good day, I can leave them outside the door. I can pick them up on the way out if I like. And, you know, it's part of the enterprise of being human. You know, we all have these things that brought us to this moment. That's what you brought me back to why I'm a cheater is because by saying I treat people with addictions, I, I'm saying it's a cheat because the person is then coming into me Willing to admit they have a problem most of the time. Sure, I get the people who are just like in, still in complete denial and they've been referred by their family member, but how is that not like any other thing? So when they're coming in from this place of, I don't want to say submission, but at admission mm. that, and because addiction is so ambiguous 
and because it can be taken into so many different directions, it affords me such a head start as opposed to the person who is coming in with anxiety, let's just say. Because there, the chances are, it's still outside of me. It's their fault. It's whereas I have an addiction. If I can get the person to that point or they're coming in at that point, I'm so far ahead of the game than so many other people who would be coming in with mental, emotional conditions. Their partner, good God, right? No, it's 99% their fault. So that's what I mean by that. It, It affords me such a head start. Well, I think it's helpful for all of us in our practices to be able to state clearly what we do and who we can help. Certainly early in my career, I thought, oh, Chinese medicine can treat anything. I can treat anybody. No. I can treat anything. No. You know, as time's gone on, I realize, you know, much like you, I don't have a specialty in addiction, but I, you know, I kind of have a sense of who I'm going to be able to help and who I'm not. And is that cheating or is that just like a little bit of wisdom painfully gained over time so that you know how you can be most useful to somebody? I don't know. That's cheating is my way of reconciling all those voices you had mentioned earlier about I have my own agenda and to the sense of, you know what, life's hard enough. In order for me to place my gift to be for my gift to be received, mm. I need a head start. Mm-hmm. I need to at least narrow down. So you know what? All those agendas that I got, they're probably not going to go away. They're just going to change chairs, right? It's going to turn into something else. <laughs> I need a new car. I need a new car. I got a new car. Okay. Well, now I need a new Yeah. Yeah. Change chairs. Yeah. Yeah. We have to take our kind of broken off center wobble and use it the best we can. Well, Mr. Lyons, this has been a surprising and delightful conversation. I have really enjoyed our time together. Michael, mine too. You know, I love listening to you and I knew right from the first time I heard you, this guy knows how to listen. You have a wonderful quality of inviting like we've been talking about with patients. So I only imagine that you must be as jamming in the treatment room as you are in front of the microphone here. So for me, I was greatly looking forward to this and I am not disappointed at all in our talk and uh, wonderfully surprised. So thank you, Michael, for having me and uh, having this talk. It's really been a pleasure and you've given me a lot to chew on. We may need to come back and have another conversation in the future. Only if we're jamming. If it's a jamming conversation, we'll... Why would you want a non-jamming conversation? (laughs) That's it, man. That's it. All right, brother. (laughs) Take care. Thank you, Michael. There was a lot in this conversation, and I feel like we just began to scratch the surface. So Randall will be back again sometime soon here on the podcast. I was particularly struck about his thoughts on the power of belief and just how world-changing that is. And hearing him say, healing is remembering, that struck a deep chord with me. 
Indeed, there is something about remembering, reclamation, and forgiveness that makes for potent medicine. And I suspect it is potent medicine because it changes the stories that hold our beliefs in place. I don't use the word transformation lightly, but when I consider how remembering can so profoundly change the story we constantly whisper to ourselves, indeed, we do transform our world. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.